українське незалежне радіо. He is a multiple New York Times best-selling author and globally recognized counterterrorism expert. His books include an end to Al-Qaeda and the plot to betray America. His new book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Militias, Terrorists, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency will be out later this year. Today on Ukraine Watch, I have the honor of introducing Malcolm Nance on our show. Malcolm, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Malcolm, you were just in Ukraine. What can you tell us about what's going on there? Well, it's not a particularly happy situation. Um, I just spent a month in Ukraine. And uh, when I went there and, and decided that I would go there in early January, it was principally because we had seen this buildup of Russian forces that started in late October, early November. And by December, it was pretty clear that this was just not like the buildup that they had last April. In fact, April in 2021, uh, which was seen as a big step back for Putin, um, was seen as a, 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 an initial test for Joe Biden. Uh, so they moved several thousand forces, like 30,000 forces to the border. The White House wasn't playing that game. You know, Putin withdrew those forces. But what Putin did was he left all of the equipment, the barracks, the tentage, all of the materials that you would need to bring a force back rapidly to the border. And by November, it was getting pretty clear, many of the Russian, uh, what we call B, uh, BTGs, right? Battalion task groups. That's the basic combat maneuver element of the Russian army, the new Russian army. Um, and they were starting to flow back in in November. Uh, we've since learned through press reporting in the New York Times, for example, today they wrote that um, the, the Biden White House actually acquired through U.S. intelligence the actual plan to invade Ukraine. And in fact, Joe Biden had spoken to uh, Vladimir Putin several times and was pretty much making it clear that we knew what he was doing. We knew how he was going to do it, when he was going to do it. And that's why we had all of these inter mini interventions that were happening from the White House. So by January, to me, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, even though many of these books that I've written about recently are about the Trump-Russia scandal or this new one about the, uh, the, the internal, you know, potential for civil war in the United States, You know, I am fundamentally a national security expert. I'm, you know, and uh, and arguably, though, I'm, I'm, I'm Middle East, North Africa. I started as a Russian cryptologic linguist in the Navy. A lot of people don't know that. And um, and ended up in Middle East, North African languages. But if there's anything I learned in my 30 plus years in intelligence, it's that the Russians are everywhere. And, you know, I started out as a, as, a, as a spy baby in the Cold War, and every operation I was on, the KGB were somewhere, or Russian forces were somewhere. So, you know, I knew the Russian order of battle, the Soviet order of battle, just as well as I knew the Libyan, the Syrian, the, you know, the Iraqi, the Iranian order of battle. And many of them had, had deep integration into those forces. Um, fast forward to the collapse of the Soviet Union and all of the, the you know, many of the, um, of the assets of, of that nation came over to the Vladimir Putin world, 
who, you know, who I've studied quite a bit. I'm not an expert on him, but I've certainly studied him from the perspective of a U.S. intelligence officer. And I've actually been to his office that he worked in in Dresden uh, when I wrote my last book, The Plot to Betray America, where we were trying to understand how is this ex-KGB officer, not even a very high KGB officer, he was sort of a middle officer, uh, yeah, junior lieutenant colonel, um, where did he get this mindset for what he sees as this new Russian imperialism? And to be honest, many of the activities that he has, even though he has hundreds of billions of dollars of illicit money himself that he that he helped earn when he liquidated the city of St. Petersburg, you know, um, but where did he get this mindset? And his mindset is actually very Soviet. And we're starting to see, or let's just put it this way, the general public is finally starting to see that the term, you know, ex-KGB really means something here. That his mindset is, he was, you know, the, the, Masha Gessen was the one who wrote his biography. And, and he, she, he told him this apocryphal story about when he was 13, he went to a KGB open house. And they said, well, yeah, you want to join the KGB? Great. Go to law school, come back, apply, and the job will still be waiting for you, right? Which he did 13 years later. He, he went to law school, uh, went to the KGB, came in as a junior um, human intelligence officer, and was assigned to Dresden, Germany, where his job was to flip Westerners or intimidate Westerners to, and make them spies. Um, and as I understand it, he loved that job. Uh, but as I sat in his office, you could realize it wasn't a big office. And the building was about three stories. It was an old philosophical society uh, building that had been taken over after World War II. It was a beautiful neighborhood, though. That's an, another interesting facet. Um, these guys did not stay in dirty, dingy, Soviet, brutalist, ugly concrete structures. They set up in the same neighborhood with mansions that one of which was owned by Clara Schumann, the great, you know, the great uh, musician and her husband, you know, the great composer. So, you know, I got a very good feel that the old fat guys in the office really just wanted to bide their time in East Germany and have drink beer. But he was a very highly motivated guy. And speaking to one of the historians that read his Stasi record, there, he was very well known for just coming into the meeting and not saying a word. And he was, he sort of understood his presence as the KGB, as an unspoken character, was a force multiplier to the East Germans who were trying to butter up some guy from, you know, from Karlsruhe who has an East German girlfriend, right? So, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, Putin did not fill his lotta up with um, you know, you know, illicit Western goods and moved back home. He went right to Stasi headquarters and took the manual or a copy of the manual, which had a record of every spy they had ever turned. And he understood the power of manipulation of, he, you know, when he went back to St. Petersburg, he just started blackmailing these people. You know, and, and, and determining who is in a good businessman, who is a bad businessman, who can I talk to and use the power of the knowledge that he may have actually been a Stasi spy against them to help us here in St. Petersburg earn a billion dollars selling the seaport. 
So Putin was that kind of character. And I, I, I emphasize his intelligence background, not because just because I come from the intelligence community, but I understand him. Okay. I mean, it'd be like making me president of the United States, right? Suddenly I'd want to know every spy operation that's going on in the country just out of sheer interest. But he uses everything that he's doing um, from the Soviet era, his, his basic fundamental mindset, where he had to be a devout communist, by the way, to be in that job. There was no being a, a you know, a, a half, you know, a half believer and being a senior KGB officer. There wasn't. But when the Soviet Union collapsed and it became this, uh, you know, fledgling democracy, oligarchy-run place, he understood that manipulating people, using his background as the KGB was the most important thing. And he went from being a low-level manipulator to a national-level manipulator with, with, you know, with, uh, with Yeltsin. When Yeltsin got into, you know, first started off with the, uh, Solicitor General of Russia, the, their equivalent of the Attorney General, investigating him for corruption. And then the first director of the new FSB, which, by the way, was the KGB. Uh, you know, we make this joke that uh, the day that uh, the Soviet Union fell, uh, a, a, a guy from maintenance comes up with a screwdriver and he removes the letters K and G and he replaces them with F and S and that that's it. You know, that was the only change between the two eras, uh, which is not really true. They got an enormous new budget during the period of uh, Vladimir Putin. And one of the things Putin did as the new first director of the FSB, right, which is a combination of their clandestine service and their national security service, um, he blackmailed the solicitor general of Russia who was investigating Boris Rush of Yeltsin. So Putin either got women to get into bed with him, prostitutes, and he videotaped the entire thing. And then when it came out, Putin, the only time anyone had ever heard Vladimir Putin speak was when he made a, a big media announcement that he could verify that the solicitor general of Russia was the man in bed with those two prostitutes. <laughs> Immediately got Boris Yeltsin off the hook. Yeltsin made him prime minister, and then Yeltsin resigned and he won the presidency after apartment buildings started conveniently blowing up in Moscow, even though FSB officers were caught with blocks of military-grade explosives, uh, which they kept calling an exercise. So that's the man we're dealing with. And what I suspect is happening now is that he has in his head very Soviet ideas about what to do with Ukraine. Um, I know for a fact that all of his behaviors towards the West are grounded in KGB mindset. Um, he doesn't believe in liberal democracy. He himself actually, almost like he came out to validate my, my book about him, The Plot to Destroy Democracy. Um, he came out and said, liberal democracy is a failed ideology and it must be done away with. And I mean, He's not playing games. He believes in autocracy. That's some statement. Also, yeah, it's an amazing statement. But he believes it to the bottom of his heart, which is why he funded other autocrats. You know, Erdogan in Turkey, Donald Trump in the United States. And, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, you're just going to have to face some hard truths. Donald Trump's first surveillance against him 
by the KGB was in 1977. His first wife's father was the reporting authority. And we actually have 10 years of surveillance records of Donald Trump by the, the Czech STB agency, which, of course, copies all went to the KGB. So before he ever set foot in the Soviet Union in 1988, there was a decade of psychological makeups and ideological beliefs and phone conversations intercepted, uh, reporting by the father. They knew he was going to run for, was talking about running for president against George Herbert Walker Bush, ex-director of the CIA, before anyone in the United States knew from a phone call they had intercepted. And all of those records are owned by a Czech television studio right now. So Donald Trump was was seen by the ex-director of, of, of Russian intelligence, uh, what, who was a middling officer. He had decades of records to evaluate how should he handle this individual. So Putin has learned how to do strategic manipulation now. And what's happening with Ukraine is just another Soviet-style mindset. I read today someone said that Putin has decided he will be the new Stalin. Well, let's look at that record. <laughs> okay, Stalin murdered how many million of his own officers? Stalin cut deals with the devil, you know, in the, in the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop. Uh, Molotov pact with Hitler. Stalin <laughs> invaded Poland, you know, divided up Eastern Europe, you know, and, and not only that, Putin's father, he's proud to say, was Stalin's cook. Yeah. So, just, and the Holodomor as well. Oh, my God. I just saw the Holodomor um, a monument in Kiev. And, uh, and my friend Ann Applebaum wrote, wrote, a, wrote a book about that, the, you know, the, using famine as a phenomenal weapon. In the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, people starved to death while food was being loaded on trucks. I mean, I, and, I, and believe me, now I've seen the black dirt there. You spit on the ground with a seed in your mouth, an orange tree will grow. I mean, it, it's just absolutely fascinating. But Putin has this Soviet mindset, a Stalinistic mindset that now he doesn't want to be Peter the Great. He, this isn't the guy that's going to go work in a British shipyard for two years, you know, in order to figure out whether he can build a better name, right? He's not going to come back and build beautiful monuments and, and make his name beloved. We, we had this discussion in Kiev the other night, and we said, well, what will they ever build about Vladimir Putin? There won't be a, you know, there won't be a Vladimirovich Berg, you know, there won't be. What is his legacy that he's looking at? What makes him think he can make Russia great again? And I don't think he cares. I think he has the mindset of a KGB officer who feels that when he's done with the mission, the only thing that matters, and this is very true of our community too, the only thing that matters is the opinion of our peers. And Putin must have a very small core of peers who see him as this phenomenal character, but you know, when it's all over and done with, no one's going to contribute. You know, I was in Lviv at, at, at the cemetery, at the beautiful cemetery uh, that that exists in Lviv, and I one of the things I thought, even with some of the more brutalistic Soviet um, gravestones, was 
people really cared about their former professors, their former opera singers, the fencer, make these beautiful statues. And Putin's getting none of that. So what is his fundamental motivation for believing he could eliminate Ukraine as one, a country, two, a democracy, three, a people, four, a culture. Um, I was in Ternopil uh, yesterday. Actually, I spent a couple of days. And, the, you know, it's true. I mean, the people say it's the most Ukrainian of all the cities. No one speaks Russian there, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's actually a pretty diverse city. I was quite surprised at the number of African and Indian subcontinent students that were there. I mean, I, I'd like seen three, Af three Afro-Ukrainians the entire time I was there. I saw 20 in the first block when I was in Chernobyl. So, but for some bizarre, strange reason, Vladimir Putin has decided all of this needs to cease to exist. And that some version of this you know, the old, you know, Kiev Rus, you know, society needs to exist. Um, and it's sort of hilarious when you, when you, uh, when you view the memes, uh, the most popular one that's going around right now is, is the, the, the photograph where they, uh, they, they transpose great symbols in, 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 uh, in Kiev uh, with Moscow uh, throughout I've history, <laughs> I think I've seen that one. The woods, you got the woods in <laughs> Moscow, and then yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, but it's true. There's Ukraine a monument in in Moscow of uh, Volodymyr, another Volodymyr, <laughs> right. uh, the Great, who uh, a thousand years ago uh, adopted Christianity in Kiev and Rus, and his trident, which is the coat of arms of Ukraine, right is absent from the one in Moscow, but there's a big statue to him there. And it's, it's, it's odd. I watched the, the Russian state TV broadcast of that theater production of their uh, security, uh, uh -huh. security Rada or whatever you want to call it, Soviet, right, as they right. decided. And what I thought was telling us. Yeah. Supreme Soviet. Yeah. That's <laughs> what it was. Exactly. And it, Two things, two takeaways for me. In the middle of it, Putin says, hey, I didn't talk to you guys ahead of time. I wanted you to come here and give me your opinions, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, <laughs> with a wink and a nod. And then lastly, the la the um, the commander-in-chief of the Russian uh, National Guard was the last guy to speak. Right. And he goes, uh, you know, we need to recognize these breakaway uh these breakaway countries as independent, which is absurd on its own. And then we have to go further to stop this. American-controlled regime in Kiev. And I've, I've talked to a, some military experts who say, you know, Russia doesn't have the forces to occupy. They can invade, but there's an insurgency. They don't have the forces to occupy. But then, you know, when you talk about this deranged maniac, is, is he going to attack Kiev? Is he, is he going to take that step? I don't know. Well, let me give you, you know, I know I've gone into this long exposition, which took a lot of Soviet history and Russian history and and Vladimir Putin's personal history, because I've been I've been tracking him yeah, and his mindset funny. for some for some time. But I know people who actually really know him. Um, Ambassador Mike McFall, uh, John Seifer, former CIA station chief, um, you know, people who, who had met him numerous times. 
um, you know, Ann Simmons, uh, the, the chief of the Wall Street Journal in there, uh, an, an Afro-Caribbean woman who's fluent in Russian <laughs> and is now state, you know, is now there um, and who has met Putin and all of them to a T um, to a person say that this is a very different character. And I know the, the head of one of the Finnish think tanks who knows him personally, who Putin from time to time would call to ask for advice, says he doesn't even know who he was talking to, who he was listening to the other day. Almost as if there's been a psychological defect that has now worked his way into his mindset. And I'm not saying this to be propagandistic. I'm an intelligence professional. Um, it's very important for me to have an accurate feel for the truth. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> another another phrase we say from time to time is when I'm giving my professional intelligence opinion, he's crazy. And although that does not, you know, it doesn't work well when you're talking about people who are doing uh, national leader psychological profiles, you know, like Gerard Bell used to do. But it does give the average person who's understanding how we're evaluating the information um, that, you know, and, and Applebaum again wrote a recent article about, you cannot view Vladimir Putin through the lens of Western ration and reason. You cannot. He is, he is Eastern. He is a, he is a ch literal child of the KGB, literal child of the KGB. You know, he refers to the FSB and SVR officers as the new knights of the imperial Russia. And so dirty tricks and little green men and using paramilitaries with Prigozhin's PMC Wagner are very important to him. But let's look at Ukraine. Um, first off, I, I was with the Ukrainian army. I, uh, I met the commander of the joint task force in Donetsk. Uh, I went to the Adovica, you know, to the battlefront there, got to 70 meters, 210 feet away from, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the occupation forces on the other side there who saw we were there and they, they took some shots at the journalists, you know, or they knew that something was going on, dog and pony. But the person who was also there was General Shipsky who is the commander of Ukraine's land warfare forces. He's the equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he is responsible for every soldier in Ukraine. And he gave a pretty comprehensive brief, which two weeks ago, he didn't believe that the Russians had the battle formations necessary to carry out an assault, which requires tanks, assault, you know, combat engineering vehicles, mine-clearing vehicles, assault bridges, because there's a lot of water over there, a lot of, lot of gullies and, and creeks and roadways that need to be bridged and forged, afforded. But he didn't think so at the time, two weeks ago. I bought into that uh, mindset at the time. But my job in Ukraine was to evaluate not just the Soviet, you know, listen to me, Soviet, not just the Russian order of battle, which during that two weeks went from 60% of Russia's combat forces, of their actual combat maneuver elements, to 77% of the Russian army. And by the time I had, you know, the, by the time I had finished my evaluation, which was yesterday, those forces had broken down into assault elements 
and we're now moving to within 10 to 15 kilometers of the border. In fact, another thing that I did was I watched very carefully where U.S. strategic reconnaissance was flying its missions. Uh, we, we've had over the last few months the RQ-4 Global Hawk drone over, over Ukraine nonstop. Uh, providing uh, battlefield positioning, synthetic aperture radars. We, you know, the persistence of that drone, because it never lands, um, gives it, or, you know, when it does land, there's another one already there. But the persistence of it shows that it can actually track where a vehicle is today and where it is at lunch and where it is at dinner and where it is tomorrow. And so when they see those little vehicles moving out of garrison and clustering down there individually, we have a pretty good strategic picture of what's going on. Um, so I came to believe this week that this was about to become a very real thing. And But the entire time I was there speaking to everyone, including all the battle commanders, was, what's the causes belly? What is the reason he wants to go to war? And, you know, I assessed that there would there could be uh, a limited campaign, and the, the the reason that these forces were arrayed around Ukraine was to fix the Ukrainian army so it couldn't reinforce the Donetsk-Luhansk battlefront, and maybe that they would break out of Crimea and go to Kherson and turn right and go to Mariupol, what people are calling a land bridge. Right. Well, you know, that's possible. It's entirely possible that that was his goal. But then I saw his his. Politburo meeting. That's the only I got the best word to use, right? Don't use anything other than the Soviet terms for these guys. A rubber stamp, you know, Potemkin, um, you know, a, a, a group of people there who are supposedly helping him make decisions in this big room. Uh, when in fact, again, we had the plan three months ago. And um, so that being said, I think. He is really dedicated, based, based on his last speech, he is dedicated to the elimination of Ukraine as a cultural, ethnic, and geographic entity. And what he wants is he wants to turn it into a wheat-growing oblast of Moscow. And, you know, I've just been deeply immersed in Ukrainian culture for an African-American my spirit guide there was an African-American, an expert named Terrell, um, uh, Terrell Starr, who, who, who lives in Ukraine six months out of the year. He exports wool clothing from Carpathia to Harlem. You I've know, been following and, him. I've been following yeah, him and I've been reaching out to him. He's a phenomenally fantastic, amazing character. He was a Fulbright scholar to Ukraine. He speaks Georgian. He was at the Peace Corps in Georgia. He was in Georgia for the South Ossetia invasion. So uh, he speaks Georgian, Russian, Ukrainian. Um, and, you know, he's, he's deeply immersed in culture and taught me quite a bit, um, as well as, you know, our, our interpreter, um, Andrei Kononak, uh, uh, Kononenko, sorry. Uh, so, but why is the operative term that intelligence professionals always ask is who what when where how is very easy at breaking fundamentals who you know the 36 combined arms army what moved into out of garrison 
where, you know, north, south of Homil, north of Chernobyl, you know, how, you know, off of trucks, onto tracks and wheeled vehicles. All of that's bad. But if you don't have why, why are they doing it? Then you can't evaluate what an enemy's intentions are. And at this point, the only wet thing that we can understand is, is that the only why here is because Putin has decided to embrace some Stalinistic form of recreating. It's not even Imperial Russia. It's Imperial Russia before the Bolsheviks got there. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, but that he didn't end very well two, for the right? Imperials. So What's he's that? combined the two. He's taken sort of a the Soviet, some parts of the Soviet culture and then combined it with imperialist Russian, it seems. Very true. And in fact, I wrote in, uh, in Plot to Destroy Democracy, which is really about him and the intelligence agencies and why they wanted to get rid of Western democracy. I wrote that he, he had adopted the motto of Tsar Nicholas I, whose motto was um, monarchy, nationality, orthodoxy. And Putin has adopted that as well, but he's changed it into autocracy, orthodoxy, nationality, and oligarchy. And now I'm, I'm wondering if I have to add, you know, neo-Bolshevism. I don't know. It's not, uh, it's not ideologically driven. It's almost historically driven. As if, you know, he, he, he had some need to erase St. Michael's, um, you know, monastery off the map. But there's also an interesting factor here that goes back to that, that orthodoxy. Uh, when I studied um, his KGB years and his post-KGB years, I found it quite fascinating that, because this man's a manipulator, that the first thing he did when he became director of the FSB, right, the old KGB, with a new name, he went back and took as the headquarters number 10 Derzhinsky Square, you know, internationally known torture center. Right? I mean, Felix Derzhinsky, first director of the NKVD, right? The man who arguably murdered millions. Uh, Putin wanted to embrace the history of that building, but next door was an Orthodox church. And it had been used for years for various things, anything other than church services. Putin used FSB funds to restore that church and then held a very grand ceremony where it was reconsecrated and given back to the church. And that bought his goodwill with the Orthodox Church. And the other day when Lavrov was, was speaking, I, I found it very funny when he was speaking. I, I think it was Lavrov at the U.N., and the first thing they mentioned was the theft of Russian Orthodox churches by Greek Orthodox. And I thought there's a cultural facet here that no American will pick up on. Every Ukrainian will pick up on. And I said, this bears watching. It's almost as if he's going to create a culture war belief. And my second thought was, you know, we need to be careful that someone does not blow up, <laughs> okay, that a bomb doesn't explode in the catacombs of, you know, um, 
of the of, of the of a Russian Orthodox Church or the 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 um, is it Saint Nicholas I believe. Um, oh, in in uh, in Kiev, you mean uh, in Kiev, Pechersky Lavra, right? Pechersky Lavra, and uh, I was just there, and uh, that would be more than enough to mobilize Russia to wage. The only word to use here is jihad, right? A religious holy war. Yeah, they take a kernel. They take a kernel of a fact, hmm. and they 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 spin it around in every which way, so that if you if you didn't know any better and you Googled whatever it was they're talking about, you might you might think for a second that the person speaking has makes some kind of sense. But it's sort of like the the, the way I see it. There's no sectarian war in ukraine there's no right. divide between it's a pretty diverse place in general um, it is a different you know people f- practice their religion freely they speak whatever language they want freely there's a, you know they've elected six different presidents in the last 30 years in right. uh, in the, in free elections well in uh, let's say in competitive elections <laughs> there were right. some there were some bumps along the road but right. nevertheless um, the trajectory is towards uh, a liberal democracy and then when you hear the rhetoric coming from Moscow, it's all about, it's all about na- you know, nationality type stuff, like our religion, our language, our culture, and nobody on the other side is, 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 is doing anything. So, what, for example, you know, Ukrainian is, a, is the official language of Ukraine, right. but in Moscow, they're saying, oh, Ukrainian is the official language of Ukraine. You're destroying the Russian language. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Everybody speaks Russian. So, but I've also found this new factor of projecting onto Ukraine the Russian autocracy and claiming that it is run by oligarchs. And it's literally, he used the phrase autocrats the other day, which I found hilarious. You know, I coined the phrase axis of autocrats, which was Putin's attempt to, um, you know, bring Marine Le Pen and Donald Trump and the government of Austria, you know, Erdogan and Orban and Bolsonaro into this alliance of autocrats, which was really attacking democracy ruthlessly. And that he projected that onto Ukraine, that there are there are corrupt autocracy, which is being puppeted by the United States. And, you know, there's run by oligarchs and there's nothing but dirty money there and i said oh my god you just described russia right minus the dictator that's the only thing they 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 somehow can't get around to calling Zelensky a dictator so you know these are very dangerous waters for him to to wade but i think he doesn't care i think he has woken up you know, and maybe he saw the death of Stalin or something, you know, he, he projected backwards or he found his father's diary of how awesome Stalin was. Who knows? But what's going on here is literally Soviet. And, you know, if it, if, if he wasn't Russian, I would have said it was the, the rebirth of the Nazis, right? To, uh, to steamroll, you know, Ukraine. But back to your point about does he have enough forces? Well, the, the Soviets had to bring in a million and a half man army to cleanse Ukraine of the Nazis, right? The Germans had to invade with a million men. Um, I've been around big historian of, of, um, of World War II, the Holocaust, and, um, and so I got to a lot of places, you know, like uh, Kamenets Podilsky 
uh, which I, I thought, you know, I wandered around. Beautiful city. Oh, absolutely beautiful. And my tour guide goes, 80% of this city was leveled by the Germans. You're, you're looking at the 20% that's remaining. And I was staggered, staggered at the level of destruction that would have been. You know, I, I, my mind couldn't process that. I'd have to see a photograph from 1940 to understand just how bad that city got it. Well, Putin has apparently decided that he has no problem doing that to every city in Ukraine because that's what it's going to take to, to achieve the goals that he wants. Uh, I know we've seen a lot of weapon systems, the big giant Smirsh multiple rocket launch system, but you have the TOS-1 thermobaric multiple launch system that shoots nothing but white phosphorus-laden rockets into urban areas. And they are in echelon in all of these forces. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, I love Kiev. I really could not figure out if Kiev was a neighborhood in Paris, Stuttgart, or, you know, there were parts reminding me of Krakow. I just kept going, this is bigger than Chicago. It really is physically bigger than Chicago. And I said, you can't take this city. You can give the city up. But I, I said, the residents aren't going to do that. I mean, these people have it in their head now. They like freedom. They like democracy. They, uh, you know, they, they like having more Teslas than I've seen in, in one city than I, you know, I've seen in Kiev than I've seen in Hollywood. And that's a lot. That's saying a lot. Um, very advanced city. Even though Ukraine has a very low GDP, um, you know, second only to Moldova, I think. I've been out in the countryside and it's a very neat country. Okay, I horseback rode in Ireland, all right? And when you're on the horse, you don't see that at every culvert, they've dumped all their trash, <laughs> okay? I could not find trash in Ukraine. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's got a rich history. And that last 77 years of rebuilding, apparently Vladimir Putin has decided it all needs to go away. Um, so... That being said, can they take the country? I think, based on my assessment of their armed force, they can. They're gonna. They're gonna invade along four different axes. Uh, one north, coming down from three different locations in southern Belarus, uh, near Yeltsin, uh, which is just at uh, to the to the west of Kiev along the border down through the Chernobyl Preserve. They're going to come through the radioactive area because their vehicles are capable of doing that. Um, and then they're going to try to make a big push in Chernayev, which is where an enormous amount of Ukrainian forces are. And they have the capability of doing that uh, because when you come out of Homil, you cross the border. There's a big wide open space there. I drove it. And, um, you know, that's where the defense is going to be is around Chernayev. Um, and then they have this force out of Bologorod, which is going to come down and turn east, I'm sorry, west, and try to take Chernaya from the east while they're cutting off other lines. Um, the 36th combined or the 6th combined arm army is going to take Sumi. Uh, then you have the, the U.S. intelligence has been just neck deep, I mean, pulling circles around Kharkiv, which means that there is a special force in Kharkiv that we assessed weeks ago would take take Kharkiv, then turn south to try to connect down to Luhansk. 
and to create a phase line that goes from just north of Kiev in Chernayev all the way over to Sumy, down to Kharkiv, down to Luhansk. And if you do that, that pressures the Joint Task Force in the south at Luhansk because now their left flank, if they take Kharkiv, is 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 in bad shape. And in fact, you may have to fall back all the way back to the original line of control of those two provinces, which would be giving up eight years of losses. Um, it'll be hard, but it has to be done, you know, um, because now the big rush for phase two will be to run to the Dnipro River and take Dnipro, uh, what's that other, there's a small area, there's a, there's a town there, sorry, I'm just super tired, I've been traveling all day. You're, you're um, basically talking about left bank Ukraine. Yes, everything. Um, and all the bridge crossings here, I just uh, uh, made, oh yeah, Kremenchuk, big, big, big crossing there. Uh, and everything to the east of the Dnipro River. That's going to be phase line two. Um, I think it'll be much slower than they think it will be. Uh, you know, I hear these armchair military experts saying, well, Ukraine's flat. Well, it's not flat. It's, it's, it's lush rolling farm fields. But these farm fields, especially east of the Dnipro River, it are giant hectare grids, which are all surrounded by trees, three rows of trees inside, roads on a, cul on a raised culvert bed. And that just lends to ambushes. It lends to any tank ambushes. Tanks are going to have to be one of one of two places: on the road or in the middle of those fields. And that is javelin country. Well, you know. Also, you can work around. They're all rectangles, right? So you can flanking means you can stay in the trees. Um, so it lends to the Ukrainian army's strength, which is going to work in small units, small elements, fall back and make them pay for every centimeter. Now, you know, I, I, I didn't get a chance to, to sit with General Sersky and, and give him my <laughs> tactical genius. But the one thing that must happen if they invade, I don't care where it is, whichever battlefront you are, there has to be a dedicated group of anti-tank ambushers who makes the first column pay and, and bring a video camera. Because what we need to show is that they are burning in rows and that you've, you know, give up some small unit, make it look like you're falling back, make it look like you're falling out and fleeing and then just ambush them with as many javelins as you can afford to use and make the first echelon column burn so that everyone that comes behind them goes, okay, now this wasn't what they told us, right? We were supposed to be in Kiev drinking at a kava bar tonight. No, this they're going to pay. The Ukrainian army today, I've heard it said many times, I believe it now, is not the army of 2014 uh, who's going to, you know, uh, like they had in um, Solyansk, where they lose an entire armored column because their friends come and say, hey, we went to war college together. We shouldn't be shooting each other. No, we're, you know, I've met these, these men and women now. They are determined professional warriors. 
and they fight for the, you know, the, the yellow and blue on their arms. And, you know, I have a good friend, uh, you know, a good friend who's, who runs an interpretation company and the interpreter with the commanding general down there is a young woman who's lived in the States, worked with, you know, West Point. Um, she's at the joint task force headquarters, you know, they've, they've been getting hit every day. So when I, you know, I, I think about her, I think, wow, you know, I've got people I know in the game, just as many of your listeners do as well. Um, I went through a park the other day in, um, and, um, in where, what, where were we? Um, Venezia. And, you know, there's kids were coming from school, just dozens and dozens of kids. Their parents were waiting there. And someone said, you know, my a friend who was with me said, why does Putin want to kill these people as they pick up their kids from school? Yeah. And it reminded me of when I was in Sarajevo, you know, in the 1990s during the Bosnian War. I'd been to Sarajevo in 1985, 86, when the Olympics had happened when I was in the military and it was a happy, wonderful, beautiful city. And that's the phrase, that's the question we all need to ask now. First is why is he doing it? Okay, we may never get that answer. The next question is, what are we gonna do about it, right? Um, you know, your, your audience are Ukrainian Americans or, or part of the Ukrainian diaspora, very big. Um, there is going to be a lot of work to do here. I, you know, there will be a trillion dollars of damage. I mean, I just can't even imagine what um, the amount of damage. First off, it's a country of all small businesses, really nice small businesses in the urban areas, you know, dressmakers and hatteries and coffee shops. Um, greatest coffee society on the planet, by the way. I'm a big coffee drinker. I thought it was Australia. Ukraine blows it away by an order of magnitude. Can I share an anecdote with you? I'm sorry, yeah, sure. but I, want, I, I gotta tell, now that you bring it up. So Lviv, city of coffee, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a place right in, you know, near downtown Lviv called uh, Svitkava, which uh, translates roughly to world of coffee. At least- Wait, you're not talking about the coffee mine? No, maybe maybe this place is at least uh, maybe ten years ago. The last time I had visited, right next to the city hall, town hall, uh, right around the corner. Yeah, right, so, right. So I walk in and I ask for a cup of tea, and the uh, the lady behind the the counter looks at me and she says, "Sir, this is World of Coffee, not World of Tea." <laughs> if you, <laughs> <laughs> I would have, I would have said, "Get out, get out right now." <laughs> They take it. They take their coffee seriously over there. <laughs> they've, they've changed the name. It's now called the Coffee Mine. Okay, I got it. And go it's now. a restaurant on three different levels. Hmm. Now, you can't believe it. It's huge. It's like it's like a Macy's of coffee now, and it's a joke. The Coffee Mine. So you go down in the subterranean basements, which are all original, you know, stone storage. And uh, they have like guys, you know, mannequins, you know, mining coffee out of the rock. It's really incredible. It is now my favorite coffee house. I thought it was Pastrudis in Alexandria, Egypt, 
No, it is now the coffee. Coffee manufacturer is how it actually comes out in Ukrainian, but mm -hmm. the coffee mine is what we call it. And it has to be World of Coffee because there's nothing but coffee in every corner of that place. Yeah. So, you know, but why? Why does this have to end? And if we wake up and I'm sitting here, I'm, I check my phone every few seconds because I have an early warning group in Ukraine of people yeah. all over the country. And I've asked them to do one thing. First shot, first sound, first rumor. I want to know about it. And the way it's going to happen is, unfortunately, it's going to be ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. Maybe a little cyber ahead of time. But first thing that's going to happen is that the country's going to have ballistic missiles raining down all over it. Caliber cruise missiles fired from ships and submarines and airplanes. And, um, you know, Bastion, any shipping missiles fired at Odessa. Um, it's, it's just going to be a destruction festival and i've taken part in many destruction festivals iraq twice you know the liberation of kuwait city and and you know uh you know tripoli libya all these places you know they don't come out better than when you go in we tend not to level places it is russian doctrine to steamroll whatever's in your way with multiple rocket launchers and then shock forces. And yeah, I don't know if you saw the photograph of 70 Russian attack. Oh, no, it was in 70. It was 30 K-25 alligator attack aircraft, 25 kilometers from the Ukrainian border in a field in their forward positions. They're ready to launch. And all they have to do is turn south and go right into Ukraine. Why do they need that level of firepower there? That was just in one spot. They have over 500 combat aircraft that are within 20 minutes of Ukraine. There, there is something happening here. And, you know, we're working as if we're, it's going to be Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia next. And it might be. You know, it, it just might be. But Putin has decided that uh, he can take on Ukraine. He does not have the manpower for it. You can take you can take some of the approaches to Kiev. You can't take all of it. He won't take anything west of the Dnipro River. Although his helicopters and spetsnaz and parachute troops, that's what they're for, which is to parachute onto these critical crossroads and hold it as, until you can get forces there. And they probably believe that they can they they can get away with it. But you know, I made a I I, I spoke to the president the other day. On television, I was speaking on uh, uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC, and I said, let me talk to the president. Um, because the, the overwhelming response I got to the question of what, what do you need? Do you need U.S. service member? They were like, no, we have our own army, right? We can bring up a half a million men and women if we have to, uh, you know, but um, what we need is weapons. And I believe that and, and this is what I said on air several times now. If the White House were to come out today and say, if your forces step foot in Ukraine, apart from where they are right now, I'm going to authorize the United States Armed Forces to release and turn over every Javelin anti tank missile system in our inventory in the European theater. 
and we're going to truck it right to Western Ukraine, and we're going to give them 5,000 missiles. And then we're going to give them 1,000 stingers, right? We're not going to take part in it, but by God, we're going to make sure that you have enough resources. I mean, they, they estimate it's like 2,500 Russian tanks. That's two missiles per tank. The point is you will strike fear into the heart of every person who's out there. They're terrified of the Javelin missile, terrified of it. And that's why Donald Trump tried to extort President Zelensky with the Javelin missile. Give me dirt on Joe Biden or you don't get these missiles. Zelensky understands this is the front line any tank missile that the United States Army uses. And it's a deal breaker. Aim it, lock it, pull the button, get up, go have a cup of coffee. The missile will fly and do everything itself and kill that tank while you're already 200 meters away. And the Russians don't like that. There's a, you have to sit there with the Concourse missile and you got to guide it and you got to wait for it to hit, you know, while people are shooting at you. So, um, you know, that would change the dynamic to where Putin would have to say, do I really want, you know, burning convoys? Also, that number of weapon systems, you know, it's, it's almost like inviting the reconquista, right? <laughs> they can now push you back kilometer by kilometer, burning tank by burning tank, back to the Russian border. You know? And Putin's not going to take on a gambit that he knows he can lose. You would think that. <laughs> so I suspect, based on the psychophancy of his panel, that he has never been told he could lose this. He could, in fact, lose. I mean, it could just be to the bravery of of the young men and women of the country. But more importantly, um, I've heard a lot of very interesting things, especially out West. You know, you have the old guys who are like, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to get my shotgun, which they're now authorized to do, carry their shotguns. Yeah. But there's a lot of technology out West. And some of the questions I got were, you know, you're an expert on suicide car bombs. And I go, well, you guys aren't going to commit suicide. The phrase I heard was, how about robotic car bombs? Yeah, there's a lot I of said, programmers. Oh, there. now we're talking here, right? A lot, of, a lot of programmers in Ukraine. There's a, oh my God. Uh, you know, and the uh, ISIS developed some of the actuation methods, which were very simple, you know, using drone uh, tools where they just put it in a pickup truck and put a thousand pounds of explosives there and drive a straight line. You know, and ISIS never relied on the roads. They'd always take it off the road, but they made sure that it locked in a straight line and and went out and they would devastate these checkpoints. So my point was, is that there's a long, deep history of partisan warfare, asymmetric warfare in Ukraine. There's actually a giant three times life size statue uh, as you entered Rodina, you know, the, the museum towards Rodina Mott of the partisans that fought the Nazis. <laughs> Obviously, Putin's never seen that statue, all right? It's like 12 people. Um, you know, uh, he may want to hit the history books again. But unfortunately, I'm, I'm just terrified that by the time you and I finish this conversation, they will be launching phase one. Um, but that being said, they're never going to take Western Ukraine. They can take, even if they were to get some puppet 
in power, you know, Medvedev or, or someone to say, OK, I'm the new president, lay down your arms. As I understand it from even some of the some of the more um, reluctant politicians that I met there, they all say the commander of the armed forces, a case of name I can't recall right now. It's just the guy. He's not going to accept any orders other than we're going to go kill Russians and y'all can come along. So I, I was quite surprised by that. Um, he's a combat commander, started off as a young officer back in, you know, in, in Maidan and, and uh, in the, in the post, you know, the invasion. And the guy's not playing games. They believe in Ukraine. And so the question is, how deeply are we in America going to believe in Ukraine? I mean, I, I feel personally involved now. So, I'm, you know, I've got friends there. Uh, you know, my friend and his, his lovely wife and his three kids, we went out to lunch before we flew out. And I was devastated. I was like, I was distraught. I said, you know, I've fought in a lot of battlefields. I have a lot of experience in asymmetric warfare. You know, these people, if they ever call for my help or if I ever find an opportunity to give them help, if this crazy invasion happens, well, they're going to find me on their doorstep, you know, as long as I get a good coffee. You know, I work for coffee. <laughs> so. Well, that, that said, I actually want to switch gears and talk about something related to that. Can we talk about useful idiots for a minute? Because um, there seem to be a lot of them in, this, in, in America oh these days. Yeah, and I've written books about this whole tomes about these people who are who, during the Trump-Russia era, starting with, you have to ask yourself, who chose Paul Manafort, okay? The guy that literally worked for, you know, uh, the, 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 you know worked for the pro-Moscow the pro government in Ukraine who organized an attack on the U.S. Marines in 2006 in Crimea, right? I mean, we have these Americans, you know, the word fifth columnist just doesn't work for them. They're, it, it's like they have been, they're more than useful idiots. A useful idiot is an intelligence term of art which means a person who is so dense that they don't understand that they're being manipulated. These people are what we would call witting assets. Yeah. They know who they're working for. They know what benefit it comes from. They hope to accrue a benefit from it in the future. They are one step below an agent, which is a person who has a contract who gets paid, right? And I don't want to. I don't want to name names, but one of them has a highly rated television show. <laughs> well, I'll name names. <laughs> I don't have a problem talking about Sean Hannity or and uh, and and uh, Tucker Carlson. Both of them. Both of them. I mean, just today, Charlie Kirk. My jaw drops when I hear some of the statements. Yeah, I'm sorry. Charlie, Charlie Kirk comes out and says, "What do we care about Ukraine?" He goes, "It's an argument between two siblings." One of them stronger than the other. It's an internal family argument. We don't, we shouldn't pay any attention to it. I go, I don't believe, you know, I've dedicated 36 years 
defending the concept of American democracy. My family has served in the armed forces nonstop since 1840, uh, since 1864. And I have Americans who are literal turncoats backing a KGB dictator who wants to destroy a new democracy. And their whole attitude is, well, yeah, he's a strong guy. Uh, and then right on the top, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, I, I've written three books about evaluating whether he was an agent or whether he was just a winning asset who works as an agent, just won't sign the contract, right? He, he knows the benefit of it. And his statement that, you know, what Putin did to take Donetsk and Luhansk was genius, right? Was brilliant, tricking people into it. Just declare them. You know, that's the autocratic mindset that Trump has. And if he wins again, Ukraine's finished. You could probably be embroiled in two years in a knee-deep in a huge asymmetric warfare you know, Ukrainians planting IEDs. People asked me about that, by the way, while I was there. Tell me about the IEDs of Iraq. <laughs> it's like, brother, I got a book. Um, you know, I mean, to where you are occupied by 50% of the country, and the other 50% is trying to fight back. You know, the equivalency of, you know, Nazi-occupied France, and you're... you're Forces on the Maquis, the freedom fighters, who, by the way, resistance organizations in war, so long as they have an organizational flag, a name, and a rank structure, are legitimate combatants on the, on the battlefield. The Russians won't treat them that way. They'll treat them as banditti or spies, and they'll execute them as soon as they find them, just like the Nazis, just like the Soviets. But... People have to understand that that's what's going to happen here if they invade. There will be a maquis. There will be a Ukrainian resistance, you know, um, and call it what you will, whether it's the army falling back and breaking down and bringing in massive groups of civilians or, the, you know, whether you get foreign assistance. Uh, there are many countries out there who, you know, who, are, who understand that defending Ukraine is defending their own borders. Lithuania just sent you 50 more, I think it's 50 more Stinger missiles. Okay. <laughs> they see the numbers of helicopters there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very important. But we have these Americans who are total turncoats. And I'm disgusted by them. I am disgusted. I spent my entire life defending this country and the concept of defending our allies and our, our other democracies. They will tear it down. And they will turn Ukraine over to Russia. Just, just hand it to them. They'll withdraw all American support. Oh, and that will come this November if the Republicans win the House of Representatives. If they win, that's it. Are you concerned? They set the defense policy. They set the budget. They set the monies yeah. that go out there. Are you concerned? Yeah, sorry. Are you concerned there are enough uh, Republicans that could gain seats that would take that same populist Trump, you know, Tucker Carlson tact? Because right now it seems like we have the majority of influential people in both parties, in the Senate especially, who are, mm. are pro-democracy. At least I like to think that it looks that way. But well, it, think? 
based on the gerrymandering and the fact that the Republicans only need five seats to win the House, yeah. and the crazy caucus is winning. They're not joking, by the way. I know it was Professor Jason Johnson on MSNBC almost a year ago made a comment. He said, um, if they win the House majority, they'll appoint Donald Trump as Speaker of the House. It only requires a vote. You don't have to be an elected member. Anyone can be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Yeah. Well, Matt Getz proposed that formally yesterday. Formally. So imagine Donald Trump, Speaker of the House, who just decides to gum up. Not one dollar in the U.S. government will work. They shut down the government for months at a time. Ukraine policy goes back to Paul Manafort's sneaky withdraw-all-support-from-Ukraine platform of 2016 again. This is a nightmare. And then perhaps openly, publicly endorsing Moscow and saying it's an internal issue. Do with it as you will. It doesn't, you know, we're going to try that with the Mexican wall. Setting the stage to destabilize Europe and destroy NATO. Disgraceful. Oh, it's disgraceful. And let me tell you about Donald Trump and NATO. Donald Trump told the the prime minister of Sweden, when the prime minister of Sweden had to inform him that he was not a Sweden was not a member of NATO. They only operated with NATO. Trump said, "That's what I would like the United States to do to withdraw from NATO." That was in 2018. We created NATO. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just insane. It's just insane. Things could get very bad. I was, by the way, career lifelong Republican, Colin Powell Republican, hard on you know, national security, soft on social issues. This is insanity, these people. They're not even, they're not even conservative. They are Putin-esque. They're essentially an element, you know, an offshoot of United Russia. And they take enough money from United Russia and Vladimir Putin and the oligarchs to make it worthwhile. And they're planning on selling Ukraine. You know, I really appreciate you taking this much time to speak with me. I'm, I'm honored to, to have this conversation. But before we go, I, I really want to ask you one more thing. And I, you brought mm-hmm. up your family uh, military tradition um, and, you know, your experience. I, I want to ask you about your great-great-grandfather, Green Nance, because um, I'm, you know, I, I'm American, but my background is Ukrainian. I speak Ukrainian. And so, you know, from my grandparents, from growing up, I've heard stories about, you know, people escaping from bondage against all odds and fighting for liberty, even even if it's not on their own behalf. And, and I hear the story about Green Nance, and I'm thinking, hey, there's... I want to hear about that because that is exactly what that is. It's it's bone chilling, and it just wasn't green. It was his brother William Henry too. They ran. They were slaves. They were slaves in northern Alabama, and um, they just you know they heard that the Union was nearby and had formed a unit called the First Alabama Volunteers, and they ran away from slavery and showed up and enlisted in the U.S. Army. Uh, well, th- that, that unit was a volunteer unit. And then that unit in a couple of months was turned into the 111th U.S. Colored Troops Regiment. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they got bored. I mean, they were, you know, got trained, got a uniform, got handed a stick or something and told to guard bridges. But it, it set the pace for my entire family. Um, as a matter of fact, William H., his brother, got bored with guarding bridges and uh, actually went into the Navy 
you know, they just switched over from the army. One switched from the army, went to the Navy and was on a riverboat on several major combat actions operating cannon. And then at the end of the Civil War, uh, William H., who's actually a little more fascinating than Green, Green settled down. Um, uh, William H. went and joined the army again and was a Buffalo soldier in the 9th Cavalry and died uh, from an inner ear infection while on patrol um, and is buried in the army cemetery at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of Nancys out there. They're all black. Uh, but it's the whole concept of, yeah, we're in a bad position. And the situation we're in is awful. And we are essentially human, you know, human machines being worked until you break and die. Uh, and to have that hope, to understand that he, they could have run away. And just, you know, work day jobs or worked as, you know, carriers on in the army. These guys wanted to fight. Oh, it's sad. I mean, I'm a little choked up because I just left these people that I love in Ukraine today. And um, my poor, my poor cameraman, I was like every, I said, do you have any Grivna? And he goes, yeah. And I go, we don't walk out of this country with one. They get everything. <laughs> Because the banking system is having problems now. We couldn't transfer the money. And I said, you know, they have three nice kids. Who knows what's going to happen to this family? I said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to guarantee that if something happens here, it's going to happen in the way that we determine. You know, we're going to support them in any way that we can. Uh, support um, any you know, the refugee flow that's going to come out, expect a minimum of 5 million refugees. Uh, I've been to every border post in Ukraine, except for the one down near Odessa and in, 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 uh, in, uh, Moldova. You know, I, I, I checked all of the evacuation routes in Ukraine. So starting with the two in Romania, Hungary, all the way up to Ushgorod in Slovenia, Right. And Poland. I came across Poland today. Um, you know, everyone's going to be heading for the Carpathians. And single road, right? Two lanes. <laughs> it's not the easiest place to get into. Well, there um, are Ukrainian partisans deep into the 50s <laughs> underground <laughs> in, in that area. <laughs> yeah, maybe they hadn't told them that it ended. You know, but yeah, against the Soviets. So... This is going to become a, a very active world. And here's what I'm going to give, give a homework assignment to your listeners. If you love Ukraine and you're Ukrainian, this would be like me coming out and somebody saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to kill all the African-Americans. All right. We've worked for this. When I went to, there's a great restaurant in Medan called Last Bastion. Right. And, um, to get in, you have to have the code word, right? Um, to get into Last Bastion. And because I'm, you know, super slick. No, really, you, you have to know a code word and what it means before they'll let you into this restaurant, yeah. right? Um, and the, the, the phrase is Boritza po Borete, right? Fight and you will prevail. Boritza po Borete, right? Mm -hmm. And so I went in the other day and I go, Baritza po barete. And the woman looks at me. She goes, very good. 
Now, what does it mean? <laughs> right? If you don't know the meaning of how these people sacrificed in Maidan, right? They ain't going to let you in. That is, your, that is your motto now. Fight and you will prevail. Because there is a fight for the existence of Ukraine. Bad enough that they mass murdered, you know, that the Nazis almost eliminated Ukraine Jewry. Well, now it may be Ukrainian language and anyone that gets in their way. That sounds hyperbolic. Even as an intelligence professional, to me, that sounds over the top. I've spoken at Auschwitz twice, just two years ago, because people are worried that this new wave of autocracy will lead to atrocities. And this report that we saw from the White House, which I was, took them to task, um, uh, I took them to task over it, where they supposedly said they had information that the Russians were going to round up individuals, artists, uh, you know, anybody that they saw as an oppositionic, and they were going to execute them or put them in camps. And I, I said, I've spent a lot of time in the intelligence community. That came from someone's orders. And I said, Jake Sullivan needs to put it out in the original Russian so that the Ukrainian people can say, well, you know, commander of the Southern Military District and the Rosgardia Command has received these orders and PMC Wagner, their mercenary group, is going to execute those orders. I need to see that in its original Russian. If they put that out, there's not a person in Ukraine that won't fight to the death. But I got to see the fact. I got to see those orders. And so your listeners need to understand that this is existential. I don't know how it's going to end. Borica i poborata. There you go. Borica i poborata. We're going to do what we can. Malcolm Nance, thank you so much for speaking with me. This was a pleasure. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Now I'm going on a guy cry here. <laughs> you know, I really feel that we really, that this is a, a time in history where it's time for you, certainly your listeners, to stand up. So, I Thank you for the information you've given us and, uh, and the insights and your work and that you care about this issue. It, it means a lot to me, and I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of people. Thank you. All right. Take care. Украинское независимое радио.